please take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. And uh, if you have uh, got an outline sheet um, on the way in, that will be a help to you. As we look at the first uh, 13 verses of uh, Romans chapter 8. As we come to Romans chapter 8, Paul has just finished describing a very frustrating dynamic. It's a dynamic which causes the Christian to be totally defeated in the fight against sin. If you look back at chapter 7 verse 18, Paul says, I have a desire to do right, but within myself I don't have the resources to do it. Verse 19, he says, I can't do the good things I want to do. I end up doing the evil things that I don't want to do. Verse 21, he says, it's not just I do evil things periodically. It's that evil dwells with me constantly. Evil is present with me. It overpowers me. Verse 22, I'm held in captivity to it. Verse 23, I can't break break free from it. Verse 24, a wretched man that I am, who shall... Deliver me. I wonder if you can identify with this or ever have. Paul cries out in desperation, yet not in total despair. Because in the very next verse, verse 25, he rejoices that there is a way to escape the frustration of continual defeat. The victory comes, Paul says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Note, victory comes through Jesus Christ our Lord, not through the Mosaic law. As an unsaved man, Paul discovered that the law was the schoolmaster to bring him to Christ in order that he might be justified by faith. And as a struggling Christian, Paul discovered the same thing about the law in respect to his sanctification. The law was a schoolmaster to bring him to Christ for his sanctification too. The Lord didn't enable Paul to live a sanctified life, but it did point him to Jesus Christ who enables him to live a sanctified life. We can't keep the law and thereby be justified. We need Jesus Christ. We can't keep the law and therefore and thereby be sanctified. We need Jesus Christ. What we need for our justification is Jesus Christ and his imputed righteousness and to receive that, we have to be found in, to be found in him, Paul says in, Roman, in, in Philippians 3. And what we need for our sanctification is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ to empower us for righteousness. And for that, we need to have him in us. This is what Romans chapter 8 is all about. Romans chapter 8 is all about Jesus Christ dwelling within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. It tells us how the work of sanctification is advanced in us through the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. Romans chapter 8 contains the greatest concentration of references to the Holy Spirit anywhere in the New Testament. He's mentioned on average almost every two verses. W.H. Griffith Thomas says... Quote, this is undoubtedly the chapter of chapters for the life of the believer. And so in verses 1 to 4, Paul introduces us to a new law. According to which there is freedom from the power of sin. 
So that's our first heading. First four verses, we see this new law. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, back in the second half of Romans chapter 7, Paul makes reference to several laws. But now he's going to introduce us to a, another law. This is a new law, hasn't mentioned before. And as we shall see, this new law stands in stark contrast to the old law he's spoken about before. But before we consider this new law, I think it's important that we understand a couple of things about the old law. Firstly, the old law which stands in contrast to this new law, is not the old covenant. It's not the law of Sinai. Rather, it's the law of sin that Paul mentions, chapter 7, verse 23. In verse 25, he also calls it the law of sin in my members. Chapter 8, verse 2, he calls it the law of sin and death. Okay, that's the old law. It constantly defeats us. And what Paul is saying is that, that old law can be overcome by a new law. The old law of sin and death that works in his members can be overcome by the new law of the spirit of life. That's one thing to note. The second thing to note is when Paul speaks about the old law of sin, he links it together with the flesh. For instance, he concludes chapter 7. With these dismal words in verse 25, with my flesh, I myself serve the law of sin. What Paul is saying that is the flesh is the means whereby the law of sin operates within the human experience. We all have this, this inbuilt sinfulness, the principle of evil which is latent within each of us. Evil is present with us. But the way that that expresses itself in practical ways is through the flesh. Galatians chapter 5. The works of the flesh are manifest which are these. And then he goes on to talk about all those sinful things. So the flesh is the means whereby the law of sin operates within the human experience. But now Paul talks about a new law that also operates in the human experience the new law of the spirit galatians 5 again the the fruit of the spirit is these godly behaviors and characteristics now according to verse 1 if we walk after this new law if we walk after the law of the spirit and not after the flesh there will be no condemnation Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. No more condemnation for sin. Now a lot of people have been puzzled by this verse because it places a condition upon no condemnation. According to this verse, it's only those who fulfill the condition of not walking after the flesh, but after the spirit that experience this no condemnation. Now, what's clearly inferred by that is if we don't walk after the spirit and do walk after the flesh, then we find ourselves condemned. And that's a worrying thing for us Christians. Is this verse teaching that only those Christians who walk after the spirit are assured that they're not condemned? 
Is it saying that those Christians who walk after the flesh, even though they're in Christ Jesus, they could be condemned to hell? So the verse poses a problem. So much so that many commentators just ignore the second half of the verse altogether. Now they do that because the critical text it doesn't have it there either. Or they say, okay, well it is there in the received text, but it's a scribal error. It doesn't belong there. It should actually be the end of verse 4, they say. And so these are the ways they try to deal with the perplexities that seem to be introduced by this verse. But I think the perplexities are overcome if we consider two things. Number one, the context. Number one, the context. This context is not dealing with justification. Context is dealing with sanctification. Chapter 1 to 5 deal with justification. Chapter 6, 7 and 8 are dealing with sanctification. This is a sanctification verse. The passage is talking about the Christian's walk, who walk not after the flesh, but walk after the Spirit. It's talking about the Christian's walk. Justification doesn't have to do with the Christian's walk. Justification has to do with the Christian's standing before God, being declared righteous. Sanctification has to do with our daily walk, the practice of righteous living. The no condemnation spoken of here is not the condemnation that a lost person is under presently and will endure in hell for all eternity. Rather, the condemnation described here is that which actually Paul has just described in the end of Romans chapter 7. O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me? He feels like a condemned man. This is exactly what he's talking about here. Continual defeat by sin in the Christian's life. That terrible state of being so frustrated and despair. That's what he's talking about. That's the context here. So context is number one. Number two, word meaning. The word condemnation is a Greek word katakrima, which means adverse sentence. And the adverse sentence in this context is the one that Paul's pronounced upon himself. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He's trying to live a godly life, but he keeps failing miserably. He is hindered by a, a body of death which is chained to him. Imagine that. Pastor Brendan mentioned this last time. Imagine that trying to live, trying to live a pure and upright life with a, a dead body of corrupting flesh being chained to you. No wonder he cries out, O wretched man that I am. And Paul pronounces this adverse sentence upon himself. And that's the context, that's the situation that this word condemnation refers to. Well, how can he be free from this situation? How can he be free from the power of this corrupting flesh? The answer is in verse 25. Freedom comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Jesus saves from this horrible situation. Yes, Jesus saves people who are condemned to hell. That's true. But that's not this verse. Jesus also saves Christians who are condemned to a life of failure and bondage to sin. That's what this verse is talking about. Jesus saves us from that situation. And the way that Jesus does that is, Romans 8 tells us, by giving us the Holy Spirit. The law of the Spirit. The presence and the person and the work of, Jesus, of the Holy Spirit in our lives brings us out of the bondage of sin that we've read about. We read about that in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. 
Now, as you read Romans 7, it's evident that sometimes Paul uses the law, sometimes he uses the word law to describe the law of Moses. Sometimes, for example, verse 22, I delight in the law of God. That's the law of Moses he's talking about. But, but usually in Romans 7, he's not talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about a, a principle that applies. And here, in Romans 8, verse 2, he's talking about a principle It's the principle of the, the person of the Holy Spirit that comes and operates in the life of a believer that sets him free from this principle of sin and death. In other words, what he's saying is the law of the spirit of life is greater than the law of sin and death. So therefore, because of this, we don't need to be controlled by sin anymore because there is a greater law that comes into play. John Phillips in his commentary provides a great illustration to help us understand this. This greater law that comes into play. This is what he says. He says, picture a coin falling toward the ground under the influence of the law of gravity. In itself, the coin is powerless to overcome the downward pull of this earth. There is something within it that causes it to fall. But before it has gone far, someone reaches out an arm and holds the coin firmly in his hand. Then lifts it up higher and higher in defiance of the law of gravity. The law of the spirit of life in that person's arm has overcome the law of gravity. This does not mean that the, the original law has ceased to operate, but it means that a higher law has come into force. We sin naturally because we're fallen creatures. We're sinners by nature as well as sinners by choice. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, a higher law is available. The law of the spirit of life and the operation of this law sets us free. From the lesser law of sin and death. Now the, the, the limitation of that illustration is the fact that the coin has no will of its own. And we do. And it is possible for us to willfully choose. Not to avail ourselves of this higher law. Either by our own ignorance. We're not sure that it exists. Or our unbelief that it could be true. Or our disobedience. So a new law is provided for us. A higher law. A greater law. So that there need not be any more condemnation for sin. There need not be any more control by sin. Thirdly, that there need not be any more continuance in sin. Verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do. In that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the, in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Deliverance from the condemnation of sin, deliverance from the control of sin could never have come to us as a result of us keeping the law of Moses. Paul illustrates that graphically in the second half of chapter 7. And here in verse 3, he tells us the reason why that's so. He says, because the, there is something the law could not do. For what the law could not do, verse 3 says. Now, this, Paul's already said several times that there's no problem with the law. He says the law is holy, it's just, it is good. It's perfectly able to do what it's intended to do. And that is to reveal the righteousness of God. 
To reveal the fact of human sin. To point us towards the Saviour. That's the purpose of the law. But the law cannot justify us. It cannot deliver us from sin's guilt. Paul told us that in the first five chapters. The law cannot sanctify us. It cannot deliver us from sin's power. Paul has told us that in the end of Romans chapter 7. The law was in, incapable of doing either. And that's what it means here, here when it says that the law was weak. It was incapable of doing something it was never intended to do. And the weakness of the law is revealed through our own sinful flesh. Our sinful flesh cannot keep the law. Let me try to give you another illustration. Imagine that living a righteous life is like flying. Overcoming the downward pull of sin, we are able to rise above to a higher level. And following that analogy, the Old Testament law then would be like a plane without an engine. Therefore, the power for that plane to fly must come from power that we provide, you know, pump on the pedals. That plane would be no good. That plane would be weak because of the limitations of our own strength. And we couldn't achieve. We couldn't rise above. We couldn't do righteous things, peddling ourselves. But the verse continues. But what the law could not do, God did by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. Now the second part of that verse needs to be understood in light of the first half. Verse begins this way. For what the law could not do. In that was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his son. Verse 3. For what the law couldn't accomplish. And that was we, on the account of our flesh, God did accomplish through his son, who, what, died on the cross for our sins to take care of his guilt, rose again, we're united with him, united to his perfect life to be lived through us. God accomplished our justification, not by the law, but by Christ dying for us. And God accomplishes our sanctification, not by the law, but by Christ living in us by his Holy Spirit. Paul says God sent his son into the world. Jesus came to the world in human form, in a human body, just like ours, except his human body wasn't tainted by sin in no way. And for 33 years, he lived in the body of his flesh, a sinless life. Never yielded to a sinful thought. Never spoke a wrong word. Never committed an improper act. In him there was no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 He knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 There was no sin in him. 1 John 3.5 His life was a condemnation of sin in the flesh. You know, Paul says it, you know, he's condemned by sin. Jesus' life condemned sin. Jesus Christ demonstrated the possibility of God's law being fulfilled in a human life, a life lived in the flesh, a life that he lived on our behalf. And through the miracle of Christ's indwelling presence in our life of the Holy Spirit, that righteous life can now be reproduced by us by the Spirit of God. Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after 
the Spirit. Notice it's not produced by us, it's produced in us. If we walk after the Spirit. Justification is the miracle of us being in Christ, to be found in Him. Sanctification is the miracle Involves the miracle of Christ being in us and Christ living his life through us. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, Christ liveth in me. I want you to notice, I think it's very important. It doesn't say that the righteous, it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. It doesn't say that the law is fulfilled in us, by us. We don't keep, we're not under the Old Testament law. It's done away with. And yet what we find ourselves as we yield to the Spirit of God, as Christ lives his life out through us by the Spirit of the power of the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace and all those things. And we find ourselves fulfilling the righteousness of the law. And so, in verse 1 to 4, Paul, we see Paul introduces a new law. A law of the Spirit of life that overcomes the old law of sin and death. When we live according to the new law, we discover no more condemnation for sin. No more control by sin. No more continuance in sin. All thanks to this new law. But then in verses 5 to 13, we're introduced to a new Lord. And of course, this new law that controls our lives is the, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, up until this point in the book of Romans, as Paul's been un Unpacking this systematic presentation of the gospel. The Holy Spirit has been conspicuous by his absence. Everything up until this point in time, he's, the Holy Spirit's only been mentioned two times. Two brief appearances. And in the section on sanctification, 6, 7 and 8, he hasn't been mentioned yet at all. Why? I think it's because the, Paul's burden so far has to be shown, has to... His burden has been to show the, the hopelessness of the pursuit of sanctification on the behalf of those who try to do it on their own, according to their own strength. But when the third person of the Trinity is given his rightful place in theology and in experience, things change dramatically. In the second half of Romans chapter 7, much of that portion is dominated by Personal pronouns, I, me, my, myself. In contrast, Romans 8 is dominated by the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned 19 times in this chapter. The new Lord controlling the believer's life is the Holy Spirit of God. Firstly, in verses 5 to 7, we see the Holy Spirit controlling our mind. Verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, they do mind, imply there, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now it's been said many times, I'm sure you've heard it, maybe you've said it yourself, that the battle is won or lost in the mind. And here we see that the Holy Spirit has a vital role, a vital ministry to our minds. Expanding the doctrine, we can understand the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds. Okay? 
We, we don't apprehend spiritual truth naturally ourselves. We need help with that. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of scriptures and help us to, to see and understand the mind of God and the will of God and the nature of God and the character of God and the plan of God and the purposes of God. The Spirit breathes upon the word and brings the truth to sight. Precepts and promises afford a, a sanctifying light. Come Holy Spirit, come, let thy bright beams arise, dispel the darkness from our minds and open all our eyes. And there are numerous hymns that take up this theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and our need for it when it comes to the enlightening of our minds. The Holy Spirit performs a vital role to our minds. He helps us to think differently. Or to borrow the expression from Romans chapter 12, he renews our minds. Instead of our minds being dominated by the flesh, our minds can be dominated and controlled by the Spirit of God. Carnal thoughts can be superseded by spiritual thoughts. As the Holy Spirit helps us to see and to understand and to know and to think as God does. To be spiritually minded as opposed to carnally minded, which Paul says is enmity with God. So what does it mean to be carnally minded? I think there's plenty of examples in the scriptures of those who at different times were carnally minded. There was Abraham taking Hagar. Think about what was going on at that moment. His carnal mind reasoned. That God's program was moving too slow. His carnal mind reasoned that things were now impossible. And so carnally he yielded to the, to the flesh, took matters into his own hands. There was Lot choosing Sodom. His carnal mind led him to think that he could get close to temptation and it wouldn't be a problem to him. Every day he could face temptation and didn't think it would be a problem to him and his family. That's carnal thinking. It was Moses smiting the Egyptian. His carnal mind let him think that God's work could be accomplished according to his own wisdom and strength. It was Joshua making a deal with the Gibeonites. His carnal mind let him think it's not necessary to pray. It's not necessary to seek the Lord's guidance in matters like this. It was Paul sparing the Amalekites, sheep and oxen. His carnal mind led him to think that there could be something even more important than obeying God. It was Solomon's political marriages. His carnal mind led him to think that the enlargement of his kingdom required him to sin on a massive scale. His carnal mind led him to think that God couldn't have, wouldn't have enlarged his kingdom if he had just been a faithful man. There was Jonah fleeing from Tarshish. He's fleeing to Tarshish. His carnal mind led him to think that God's plan wasn't the best for him. His carnal mind led him to think that disobedience was better than obedience. I'm sure there are many others that illustrate the working of the carnal mind. 
And there's only one way to avoid the mistakes made by the carnal mind. That's to have the mind of Christ. And the only way to have the mind of Christ is to allow the spirit of Christ who indwells us to take control over our mind. The battle is won or lost in the mind. And whoever controls the mind determines the outcome of the battle. In verses 8 and 9, we see the Holy Spirit controlling our motives. Verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is... Nope, sorry, verse 9, that's where we finish. <coughs> now we know it's possible for a Christian to walk after the flesh. Paul explains that in great detail in the second half of Romans chapter 7. Now, what a Christian should do and what a Christian can do is walk after the Spirit. The word after there, convey, there, there conveys the idea of following the influence of. But here in these verses Paul uses a different expression. It's not after the flesh, it's in the flesh. And that expression refers to an unsaved person who is contrasted to the saved person, someone who is in the Spirit. And the Greek word in there conveys the idea of sphere of life. And brethren, though we may not realise it or be fully conscious of it, it is inspired truth of the word of God. It is a biblical fact that we as Christians live within the sphere of the Holy Spirit of God. We've been baptised into the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God indwells within us. The unsaved person has none of that. Doesn't have the Spirit at all. Doesn't belong to the Lord at all. And so these two verses distinguish between the saved person and the unsaved. Those who belong to God and those that don't. Christians, all Christians are those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and that is good. But the reality is, and we know it, that the words of Jeremiah are still true for us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the hearts. I try the reins. And even the best-intentioned believer cannot properly evaluate our own motives. And it's only as the Spirit of God shines the light of Scripture upon our consciences that we can be confident that our motives are well-pleasing to the Lord. And this is why that hymn and the prayer reflecting that hymn, Search Me, O God, is such a needful thing. Search me, O God, my actions try. And let my life appear as seen by thine all-searching eyes to my, to my eyes, my way make clear. Help me to see my life like you see my life. That's a prayer. Search all my sense and know my heart, who only canst make known and let the deep and hidden part to me be fully shown. You know what's going on at the depths of my being. Lord, sh sh help me to see that. Help me to see me as you see me. Throw light into the darkened cells where passions reign within. Quicken my conscience till it feels the, the loathsomeness of sin. Search all my thoughts, the secret springs, the motives that control the rebel heart where evil things hold empire or the soul. As Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2, our minds need to be renewed. We need to think right if we're going to live right. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. It is as the mind is renewed that the life is transformed. So we need the Holy Spirit controlling our mind, purging our motives. 
Thirdly, verses 10 to 13, we see the Holy Spirit controlling our members. Verses 10 to 13. Back in uh, verses 5, 6 and 7, Paul shows the Holy Spirit can control our mind. Verse 8 and 9, we just look at the Holy Spirit can control our motives. Now verse 10 to 13, we read that the Holy Spirit can raise our body from the dead. And if our, the, the Holy Spirit can and will one day raise our bodies from the dead, the inference, the logical thing is, certainly he can help control our members now. Okay? If the Holy Spirit has so much power as to raise Jesus from the dead and will raise us up one day, certainly the Holy Spirit has enough power, therefore, to control our bodily members now. Verse 10. For if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, ye are dead as not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. If we allow the spirit of God to take control of our members, so we put to death the sins of the flesh and don't do them. We shall live. Notice verse 10 begins, and if. Verse 11 begins, but if. Both of those verses begin with a conditional statement, which in the Greek, that condition is assumed to be true. Can we read it this way? Verse 10, and if, sorry, uh, where it says, and if, and if Christ, we could translate it since Christ or because Christ. Okay, the condition is assumed to be true. What it's saying is that since you have Christ's indwelling presence or because you have Christ's indwelling presence in your body, which is subject to death because of sin. Yet the indwelling spirit within you is alive because of righteousness. Because righteousness has been imputed to you. You now have the spirit of the living God, the spirit of life within you. In other words, even though we're all sinners and our physical bodies are in the process of dying. Yet because we have been declared righteous by faith in Christ, we are indwelt by the spirit of God. That's the spirit of life. And that is a fact. And to that fact, Paul adds verse 11. This truth is. Since God, by the Holy Spirit, raised up Jesus from the dead, God promises all those in whom the Spirit of God now dwells, he will raise us up one day to be with the Lord in heaven. But in the meantime, in the, meantime the logic is this, the logic is this, that the same Spirit that can, has that much power can certainly control our members now, so we don't have to yield our members to, to do sinful things. Rather, we can put to death the sinful deeds of our body. And all of this is because the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us. The use of Jesus' name there in verse 11 is significant. The name Jesus, raised up Jesus from the dead. There's only one other place in the book of Romans where that single title is used. The name Jesus, of course, was Christ's human name. I think Paul wants to draw our, fact, draw our attention to the fact that Jesus was once in the place of, of weakness, the limitations of humanity. 
He was limited in his body. He got tired. He got weary. He got hungry. All those things that we experience in the body. But God raised him from the dead by the Spirit. And the same powerful Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in us to help us in our weakness. You know, when we get to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we see God calls us to present our bodies, our bodily members, as a living sacrifice to him, holy, acceptable unto God. And we can do that. We're able to do that. That, that is possible. That is achievable because the Spirit of God dwells within us and helps us to yield our members, not to sin anymore, but we're empowered by, thereby to do that which is right. Don't walk in the flesh anymore. However, we can't do that unless we have the Holy Spirit's help. In verse 13, Paul tells us that Christians who consistently follow the dictates of the flesh, what's he say? He talks about death. Paul's talking to Christians who consistently follow the dictates of the flesh, can look forward to death. Now, obviously, he's not talking about eternal death, separation from God forever, because of you know, what we've already seen about what it means to be in Christ. So, therefore, it must refer to temporal death. And sin produces death in several forms. For example, in extreme cases, there is the separation of the body from the soul, physical death may occur prematurely because of the Christian's perpetual sinfulness. We know that's a fact. But there's also the separation of a person from other persons, the death of social relationships because of sin. This happens as well. But there's also the separation of a person from himself, psychological alienation, various disorders. And then, of course, there's a separation of the person from the blessing of God. And perhaps there's more. Galatians 6 tells us God is not mocked. You sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Conversely, believers who follow God's will with the enablement of the Holy Spirit put the sinful deeds of the body to death. They will experience abundance of life. The fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and so on. You know, in the upper room, Jesus told his disciples that he was leaving. But he assured them that, was, that would be okay. And he said it would be okay basically for three reasons. Number one, because he's going to prepare a place for us. Number two, because he's coming back one day to take us home. And number three, because he gave us his Holy Spirit which Jesus said is a, a, another comforter, a comforter of the same kind, just like me, he said, exactly the same. The Greek word is alos, a comforter the same as me. And it's interesting that Jesus should call the Holy Spirit a comforter. The Greek word is parakletos, someone who's called alongside to provide help. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 7, we see someone who's desperately in need of help. And maybe that's you today. Desperately in need of help. Desperately in need of the Holy Spirit's ministry. 
God's help is provided through various means. But certainly this, this way to every Christian, God's help is provided by the indwelling spirit of God. Whom if we allow him to control our minds and our motives and our members, then we will find no more condemnation for sin, no more control by sin, no more continuance in sin. And my prayer is that knowledge of this today would be a significant step and help for each one of us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank, we want to thank you today uh, for every provision that you have made for us. Thank you that you provided for our justification. Thank you that you have provided for our sanctification. Thank you, Lord, that righteousness is imputed to us. Thank you also that righteousness, the righteousness to live is provided that we have power to do that. Empowered for righteousness because of what you provided for us in the person and work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Well, this is of, a, of huge significance, not just in the book of Romans. It's of huge significance and import in each of our lives. And maybe for many of us, this is news for us today. Lord, I do pray that you do error and ignorance remove, even as we've already sung today. It's not just little children who need that. Lord, we need that as well. And so we pray, Lord, that you continue to open our eyes to the truth of your word. May the Spirit of God help us to understand the truths of your word, the truths even that we've seen today. And we pray that for the indwelling Holy Spirit, there would come forth from that the outworking of his blessed presence in our lives. We thank you and we praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.